Welcome to today's episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the ways that COVID-19 are impacting the most vulnerable communities the worst, and how our legacy of discrimination is being put on full display. Clips today come from Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction, The Takeaway, The Daily Social Distancing Show, Intercepted, Off-Kilter, Counterspin, and Epidemic. Blacks are more likely to have diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, and I've shared myself personally that I have high blood pressure, that I have heart disease, and I and many black Americans are at higher risk for COVID. That's the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Jerome Adams, talking to CBS. On Tuesday, he sounded the alarm about the racial disparity in deaths as a result of COVID-19 and how underlying health issues play into it. The federal government has not yet tracked coronavirus by demographic groups, but what we are seeing from some states is pretty shocking. In Michigan, where I grew up, 14% of the population is black, yet they make up 41% of coronavirus deaths. In Illinois, 15% identify as black or African American, but they make up 43% of deaths. A similar pattern is emerging in Louisiana. The African-American community is about to get decimated by this virus, and it's time for us to start talking about it in those terms. That's criminal justice reform advocate and CNN commentator Van Jones. He outlines some of the other issues that make black America more vulnerable, starting with the fact that they are disproportionately low income. The thing about being poor is it's hard to get away from people. Rich people are already socially isolated. They got gated communities. They got mansions. Part of being poor is you got a bunch of people around you you can't get away from. This virus actually is ultra lethal for black communities because it is an epidemic jumping on top of other epidemics. So you already have an epidemic of hypertension, high blood pressure in the black community. All the doctors are saying people who have high blood pressure and hypertension are very at risk to dying when they get this virus. Nobody is saying that to the black community loudly enough. You know, older people or people who have other factors, comorbidities or whatever they say. Nobody knows what that means. What that means is if your grandmother has high blood pressure or diabetes, grab her and pull her into the house and do not let her out for two months. That level of urgency and specificity has been missing. There's also been a lot of misinformation. Literally a rumor started in the black community that we are immune to this virus. There's a virus that kills old white people. And the only thing that spread faster than the virus was this rumor. And so you now have tens of millions of black people who have heard, and this is really not our issue. And in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Van says he's particularly worried about the South, where the majority of America's black community lives. My sister, who lives in Tennessee, could not get her employer to let her stay home from work, even though she has a ton of health issues that would make this virus almost immediately fatal to her. The employer said, listen, if the mayor's not telling you to stay home and the governor's not telling you to stay home, who am I to tell you to stay home? Come to work. My sister finally got permission on Thursday of last week to work from home. This is happening to African-Americans across the South and to white people across the South as well. But the black community has special underlying epidemic of health problems that make this virus lethal to us. And yet 
we live in states where governors are the most delinquent. It's been shown in study after study that people reporting the same symptoms, if it's a black person versus a white person, doctors tend to take black pain less seriously. And that on top of the fact that you've got this virus coming through without us taking proper precautions and our underlying health means we're headed for a disaster. Van's concerns are well-founded. There's no doubt this virus has brought into even greater focus the structural inequalities in our healthcare system, which puts certain communities at greater risk. Michigan lawmaker Tyrone Carter, who contracted the virus himself, explained why on CNN. When we talk about healthcare, it's easy to say that it's accessible, but to people that don't have a job, a service job that has healthcare, sometimes they use urgent care or the emergency room as their primary care physician. So what this has done is magnified those issues. Epidemiologist Dr. Kamara Phyllis-Jones, who was also a former president of the American Public Health Association, echoed those same sentiments. What we're seeing in these statistics right now, it reflects that Black folks are now getting it more, and that's because they're more on the front lines and less protected on those front lines, right? So it is not as easy for them to shelter in place. Um, and it's not as easy because they might have front-facing jobs like home health aides or bus drivers or postal workers or working at Amazon and the like. They might, even if they wanted to shelter in place, not have paid sick leave available to them, although the, the third rescue package that the Congress passed is meant to address some of that, but may not even be eligible for you know, unemployment insurance because they haven't been working at a job for two years. But it goes even further to include a social bias. For example, as the CDC released new guidelines urging people to wear masks, some black people have come out and said that wearing a mask could put them at even greater danger. Here's Van Jones again. We already get shot and profiled and people treat us with alarm just walking in the store to buy some Skittles. Um, Literally, Um, just wearing a hoodie can be a death sentence in, in some communities. So the idea you're going to be wearing a hoodie and a mask, um, if that's going to be the new social norm, then people need to adapt uh, to give African-American men and, and young women and other people of color more the benefit of the doubt. This virus is hitting different communities differently. So what can be done to level the playing field? Dr. Jones told me fundamental to all of this is still the basic idea of identifying who is sick. I think the more fundamental problem is that our whole testing strategy has been more of a clinical strategy, that is, a strategy that doctors might take to treat a disease as opposed to a public health kind of population-based surveillance strategy where you want to intervene on the course of the pandemic. She, like many other officials, is urging the government to keep comprehensive demographic data on people who are tested. Racial and ethnic data will enable us to better inform communities at greater risk and allow us to tackle the underlying inequality that is still plaguing the system. My work for decades now has been on naming, measuring, and addressing the impacts of racism on the health and well-being of the nation. And why am I doing that? Because we don't have to be here. It is sad but true that so many black Americans have higher rates of some underlying conditions like heart disease and diabetes, conditions that may also increase their risk for COVID-19. But again, it is these structural inequalities 
that have led to these higher rates of pre-existing illness. Lack of access to good food, lack of access to health care. And on top of that, black America is disproportionately at the front line of this pandemic, not just within healthcare settings, but within food delivery, grocery stores, and pharmacies, people doing work, risking their lives in order to keep the country running. These are all factors that have made this pandemic so much more severe in parts of the black American community. hospitals across the country face an increasing number of coronavirus patients, early data shows people of color are testing positive and dying at much higher rates. In Milwaukee, one of the few places that has released a racial breakdown of COVID-19 cases, African-Americans made up 81 percent of deaths in a county that is only 27 percent black. And in black communities across Michigan, Illinois and North Carolina, there are also a high number of reported cases. But severe shortages of medical equipment and staff across the country mean that healthcare providers are now forced to make decisions about whose life to save in critical situations. And that means racial bias could play a role in how doctors allocate life-saving treatment. I spoke with Kiara Bridges about this. She's a professor of law at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. And she writes about race, class, and disparities in healthcare. And I also spoke with Douglas White the vice chair and professor of critical care medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. He also directs the program on ethics and decision-making in critical illness. First, I asked Doug how these critical decisions are typically made in hospitals. In ordinary circumstances, decisions about, for example, whether to use a ventilator or admit a patient to intensive care really come down to an individualized conversation between a doctor and the patient, if the patient is awake and able, or the patient's family focused on both the patient's medical prognosis and the patient's values and preferences. So if the patient has a condition that is potentially treatable and the patient wishes to receive life-prolonging treatment, then the doctor and the patient or family collaboratively make a decision. In contrast, if there is a public health emergency where there is a true and severe shortage of ventilators, for example, the situation is really different in the sense that decisions will be made in ways that are not as focused on the individual well-being of patients so much as focused on maximizing the outcomes of the population of patients being served in that region. So let's sort of dial back a little bit. And Kiara, I want to bring you in here because before a patient gets into a hospital setting or an intensive care unit, there are a lot of different healthcare professionals along the way making decisions. Can you talk about what we know about bias against people of color along that journey? People of color in this country are sicker and die earlier. And so um, scholars like myself working in this space have tried to figure out why that is. And a lot of the conversation has centered around bias and specifically implicit bias. And the idea here is that um, providers, doctors, nurses, care providers along the entire chain um, have unconscious associations and aversions. And so by unconscious, it means that they're not exactly aware of them. So if you ask a provider, you know, do you think Black people are criminals? They'll say no. If you ask anybody if you think Black people are criminals, most people would say no, and they'll be honest. You know, they're not lying to you. 
the idea with implicit bias is that there is an association, for example, between blackness and criminality, between blackness and laziness, between blackness and mendacity, you know, untruthfulness. And so these unconscious associations are manifested and usually under um, extreme time constraints. So when you're in a highly pressurized situation like an emergency room where there's a shortage of everything from masks to personal protective equipment to ventilators. Um, this is an incredibly constrained environment. You know, it's just most stressful. And so it's in those environments that um, people are going to act on their implicit biases, even though if you ask them, they would not say anything about being averse to people of color or preferring white people over people of color. And so the idea is that well before you've arrived at that place, that time when um, you're trying to figure out whether to admit somebody to ICU to give them a ventilator, um, people of color have encountered biases along the way in terms of or have they been treated for um, the hypertension that they might have had? Have they been treated for diabetes? Have they been given the quality health care that would allow them to be healthier so that they're not in a situation where they need ventilator at the end of life. One of the reasons we're talking about this right now is obviously the coronavirus pandemic. And Doug, you developed a new set of guidelines for hospitals to help them make ethical decisions right now. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? This work dates back over a decade to the time that uh, the avian influenza epidemic was going on and then then around the time of the H1N1 (laughs) pandemic. And the existing guidelines from professional societies at the time we viewed to be highly ethically concerning because they recommended simply excluding from access to ICU care patients with certain characteristics, for example, those with advanced age, those with severe heart and lung problems, and those with cognitive impairments. And we viewed those to be, frankly, just discriminatory features of the guidelines. And so we set out to develop a very different approach. And the gist of that approach is that rather than excluding patients from ICU care, all patients who are normally eligible for ICU care remain eligible. And priority is given according to the likelihood that an individual will benefit as defined by their likelihood of surviving to hospital discharge and beyond according to objective measures. And so rather than saying these classes of people are excluded, everyone is included and we go as far down the list as we can based on the availability of scarce resources. Do you think having that kind of, I guess, checklist or framework helps doctors and care providers go back to the guidelines in an emergency situation? I do. You know, I think the concerns that Kiara raised around implicit biases coming out in time-pressured circumstances are well taken. And so having clear guidance that clinicians can look to in very stressful circumstances, we think will decrease the bias in decisions and make decisions across classes of patients more consistent. Kiara, Doug is talking about a lot of things that often are are referred to as comorbidities, sort of other medical things that are going on. How important are issues of comorbidity when we're talking about patients of color? 
so a person who has a history of malignancy, for example, um, so if you are a cancer survivor or if you have diabetes, if you have asthma, if you have a kidney disease and you've been receiving dialysis, right, all of those conditions um, place you at higher risk for developing more severe cases with the coronavirus. And so when I said earlier that Black people are sicker and die earlier than white people, it means that Black people more frequently have those comorbidities. So Black people more frequently have asthma. I mean, one of the causes of asthma is, you know, environmental. So living in a polluted environment. So people of color have been forced to live in really unhealthy environments. And the consequence of that is that we have higher incidences of asthma. People of color more frequently suffer from diabetes. We uh, less frequently survive it. We less frequently survive cancers. And so all of the things that place people, individuals at a higher risk of developing very severe cases of COVID-19 are all of the things that people of color have more frequently than white people. And so I think that the framework that Doug has developed is great, right? I think that standardization is incredibly important. Um, It takes away uh, the provider's discretion to decide, you know, I have a white patient who's 65 and, you know, privately insured and he's the CEO and his family loves him very much. And I have to decide whether to give the ventilator to him or a black patient who's 50, but he is quote unquote, just a janitor or he might have Medicaid or so the standard that the framework that Doug has developed will sort of remove the the bias from that, the discretion, the, the ability for a physician to discriminate really in favor of the class privileged, race privileged person over the class unprivileged, the race unprivileged person. But I think that at that moment, a lot of bias, a lot of discrimination, a lot of racism has occurred already. It precedes that moment and that in the effects of that racism is in the comorbidities that people of color tend to have more frequently than their white counterparts. Today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN, which protects your privacy and security online. But what you may not know is that it can also be used to unlock movies and shows that are only available to stream from other countries. Now that so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. But you could use ExpressVPN to binge shows like Doctor Who on Netflix only available in the UK as just one example of thousands. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. It hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. But it's not just Netflix, it works with any streaming service. And it's ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world. If you visit expressvpn.com left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want from wherever you want, and protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com left. Let's talk about black people. They like white people, but with seasoning. 
In America, black people have had a long history of getting the short end of the stick. From slavery, to Jim Crow, to the criminal justice system, to the sunken place. But when it came to the coronavirus, it seemed like for once, black people were catching a break. A lot of these viruses were immune to. Yeah. Because our skin is radiant and our skin comes from the sun. Mm -hmm. That is our superpower, melanin. Black people, we will not get the coronavirus because we got a little thing in our body where we call the melanin. Minorities can't catch it. We sure. Say say that one more time. Minorities can't catch it. Minorities can't catch coronavirus. Why do you say? Why do you believe that? Name one. I don't know, but it could happen. (laughs) Name one, though. It could happen. Name one of us. Yeah, when this whole pandemic was just kicking off, many people, many people thought coronavirus was something that just didn't involve black people. Sort of like Tennis Elbow or Tiger King. Very quickly, we've come to learn that not only can black people get coronavirus, it turns out that black people are being hit harder than anyone else in America right now. With the rate of infection increasing in cities across America, there are alarming new statistics showing the pandemic is taking an especially heavy toll on minority communities. African-Americans account for 41% of COVID deaths in Michigan, though only 14% of residents. In Chicago, black residents represent 72% of deaths, but just 30% of the population. Louisiana's population is 32% black, which accounts for about 70% of coronavirus deaths. The disparity uh, in deaths among African-Americans, they're startling. The data is clear. Coronavirus is disproportionately impacting and killing people of color. That's right. As America has become the epicenter of the coronavirus worldwide, black America has become the epicenter of the virus's worst effects. And this has become such a major problem that even President Trump has taken notice. In the US, African-Americans are dying at a much higher rate from COVID-19 than other groups. President Trump calls it a real problem and a tremendous challenge. This is something that's come up, and I don't mean by a little bit. I mean many times. It's a real thing. Now, why is it that the African-American community is so much, you know, numerous times more than everybody else? Why is it three or four times uh, more so for the black community as opposed to other people, it doesn't make sense. And I don't like it. And we're going to have statistics over the next probably two to three days. It almost sounds like Trump is jealous that black people get coronavirus more than anyone else. Just because of the way he said it. How come black people are getting it and not me? What do they have that I don't have? Is it swag? Is that what it is? Is it caused by swag? No, but look, obviously I'm joking. I'm totally joking, man. If anything, it's refreshing. It's honestly refreshing to see President Trump so concerned about the black community. But, but when he says it doesn't make sense that coronavirus is hitting black Americans the hardest, it's actually the opposite, right? Because when you look at the systemic and socioeconomic factors facing black people in America, it makes complete sense. You see, overall, black people are less likely to have health insurance. Black people are more likely to have pre-existing conditions like asthma and diabetes, and those things make coronavirus more lethal. Black people are also more likely to be in service jobs where you can't work from home and you have to come into contact with lots of people every day. 
And of course, there's always just straight up racism that affects black people as well. For example, one study has found that black people have been less likely to be offered a coronavirus test by their doctor, even if they're exhibiting the same symptoms as white patients. Yeah. So while almost every industry around the world is shut down, it looks like racism is still considered an essential service. And racism is even affecting whether or not black people can protect themselves and cover their faces when they go outside. Jody Armour is a law professor at USC Law School. He and other academics believe wearing masks can pose a problem for people of color. The fear of being mistaken for a dangerous criminal may be greater than the fear of contracting COVID-19. Wearing protective masks while black is a concern just like driving while black is. This officer right here behind us, he just followed us from outside, told us that we cannot wear masks. There's a presidential order, there's a state order, and he's just and he's following us right now to store. We're being asked to leave for being safe. Come on, man, this is some bullshit. If black people don't wear a mask in public, what's gonna happen? People are gonna say they're endangering public health. But then if black people do wear masks, then they're treated like they're preparing for a mission in Red Dead Redemption or something. Like, what do you expect black people to do, hmm? At this point, the only safe way for black people to cover their faces in public is to try and disguise themselves as a white person. And I'm not talking about code switching. I'm talking about actually putting on a white person's face as your mask. Some people will be suspicious, but it'll work. Hey, you look white, but there's something off. Say something only a white person would say. Uh, I wish Kamala Harris was back in this race. Checks out. I'll see you at hockey practice, buddy. So look, the unfortunate truth is that the black community is being slammed by coronavirus right now. But in a way, it's not because there's anything special about coronavirus. It's because any widespread crisis in America is bound to hit the most vulnerable and disadvantaged groups the hardest. People will listen to this and say, well, these presumed biases against people of color are really about class. Mm -hmm. But you have written that that is not the case. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. So three to four times as many black women as white women die on the path of motherhood. And a lot of people, the intuition is to explain that that disparity in terms of class and that intuition has been that, well, you know, we all know that people of color disproportionately bear the burdens of poverty. And so the idea here is that people of color disproportionately die during pregnancy, childbirth, and shortly thereafter because they're disproportionately poor. However, that is not true. Um, those racial disparities and maternal mortality persist across income levels. So even when you're at the higher um, end of the socioeconomic ladder, when you are class privileged, when you might be a professor of law at UC Berkeley School of Law, I am more likely to die than my white counterpart at UC Berkeley School of Law. So we can't explain racial disparities in health simply in terms of class. And class does do some work towards making it more likely that people of color are sicker 
and will die earlier, but it does not do all of the heavy lifting. And so the moral of that story is that race matters, right? Race persists, even in the post-civil rights era where um, we don't have sort of formal disenfranchisement of people of color. The structures that we have erected, the institutions that we have, the systems that we have in place have continued to function to limit the quality of the lives that people of color have, even when they have some degree of class privilege. Doug, when we talk about training healthcare workers, how do hospitals incorporate thinking about implicit bias when they are doing that? And and does that still get kind of equally factored into an institution's thinking when you are in an all-hands-on-deck kind of situation? Great questions. First, on, on the issue of training, I've been heartened to see in the last decade much more focus of this, both in the uh, undergraduate medical training, as well as in the training of residents and fellows in the hospital who go through a variety of trainings around implicit bias and, and other aspects of dis- bias and discrimination. And then on, on your second point, I think the point that Kira raised is right on the money, which is that these things are unconscious. And so it's not that someone is turning it on or off on purpose in a stressful time. It's that these things may be more likely to unearth themselves at these times when physicians are relying on what we call heuristics, which is, you know, fast and frugal mental shortcuts to make hard decisions in time-pressured circumstances. And frankly, that's why in the framework that we've developed, we have put in place a recommendation that it should not be bedside doctors who are making these decisions. And instead, it should be a team called the triage team who are not engaged in bedside decision-making, don't have obligations to individual patients, and instead have a much broader and hopefully more objective view of the lay of the land in the hospital and how many beds there are and how many ventilators and how many sick patients. And, you know, the other part of how we are recommending that these triage teams function is that they should be blinded to certain attributes of the patients, like their race and their social status and their gender and sexuality and and all these other things that we think are irrelevant to how triage decisions should be made. So that instead of these triage teams actually seeing and evaluating each patient, they'll be given a very limited amount of information on only the key points that we think are ethically relevant in making allocation decisions. And they'll base the prioritization on only those factors in a blinded way. Kiara, I know you've thought about med schools and training as well. And I guess one of my questions right now is what your biggest concern is in terms of trying to carry some of that training into an emergency situation around COVID-19. Yeah, you know, I I really applaud the work that um, medical schools and hospitals and residency programs are doing around implicit bias and, and making sure um, that healthcare providers, the the doctors, the residents, um, the students are aware of this phenomenon called implicit bias. And our, you know, in in medical schools, have even gone so far as to administer the implicit association test to um, their students. And so this is a test that purports to reveal the extent of biases. And so the idea here is that if a person knows that they too possess an implicit biases, pro-white, anti-black implicit biases, um, they'll be more cautious about acting on them. Um, when they go out and practice medicine. 
But as Doug said, you know, this is not, no, no one is accusing anyone of doing, of being biased intentionally, right? And so these are unconscious. People don't choose to turn them on and off. So we can have the best of intentions, but if you're in a time pressure situation, running out of ventilators, running out of beds, um, it's hard to say, well, I'm not going to act on my pro-white, anti-Black implicit bias today. I'm more curious as to why everyone has anti-Black, pro-white implicit. And I say everyone because even people of color have pro-white, anti-Black implicit biases. And the reality is that we've created a society in which we should expect people to have pro-white, anti-Black implicit biases. We've created a society in which people of color are hyper-incarcerated, right? So we shouldn't be surprised if someone ha- associates Blackness with criminality because we've created a criminal legal system that hyper-incarcerates people of color. We should not be surprised if we associate Blackness with poverty and indigency and laziness, right? And, and, and we shouldn't be surprised that we associate laziness with poverty, which is, you know, absolutely empirically inaccurate, but it's because uh, people of color are disproportionately bear the burdens of poverty in this country. And so the solution to implicit bias is not attempting to cleanse physicians and clinicians of their implicit biases. The solution isn't to make them aware of their implicit biases and to say, you know, make sure you don't act on them today. But the solution is to create a world in which we don't have implicit biases in the first place. And so in order to create that world, we're going to have to do some, you know, mass reorganization. We're going to have to rethink how we distribute the benefits and burdens of capitalism. We're going to have to rethink how we address our social problems. We can't expect to have equality and equity in hospitals or in the, you know, in the healthcare provision space if we don't have equality and equity everywhere else. As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of the Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that, and that's why we expect to begin to see a drop in our Patreon members in the coming weeks. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the U.S., U.K., and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right There's nothing additional you need to do, and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser, or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support. In Milwaukee, which is the biggest city in the state, with the largest African-American and Latino populations in Wisconsin, there were just five polling sites open. Normally, there would be around 180, but yesterday there were just five. And people had to wait online for hours on end just to exercise their right to vote. 
and in doing so, they were forced to risk their lives and those of others. This election never should have happened this week. And this has been clear to anyone who has been paying attention to the developments with this pandemic over the course of many, many weeks. We saw the infections that happened after the Illinois and Florida primaries, after they continued and moved forward with them. And now we are going to almost certainly see a spike in cases in Milwaukee and other cities in Wisconsin. So why did it happen this way? Well, Wisconsin's governor is a Democrat, Tony Evers, but the state legislature and Supreme Court are in the hands of the Republican Party. Now, up until last week, the position of the Democratic governor was that the election should continue, although he was consistent in encouraging as much voting by absentee ballot as possible. I don't care who's running for office or what's on the ballot. Everybody should be able to participate in our democracy, period. The Republicans were happy with that. And despite major protests from mayors of 10 Wisconsin cities, including Milwaukee, saying this isn't safe for the public, the governor held firm with GOP support. The election would go on. Now, Governor Evers did try to expand the rules for absentee voting and extend the deadlines, which the Republicans opposed and actually sued over. A federal judge said the election should be postponed, but he said he had no power to stop it. Eventually, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to intervene to protect expanded absentee voting, bringing an end to the governor's attempt to encourage as much of that as possible. And then late last week, Governor Evers announced an emergency session of the state legislature for Saturday to try to encourage Republican lawmakers to postpone the election. They did convene, and then within moments of beginning the session, it was adjourned by the Republican leader of the legislature. The April 2020 special session is adjourned. So the governor issued an executive order postponing the election until June. I've been advised by public health experts at the Department of Health Services that despite the heroic efforts and good work of our local election officials, poll workers, and National Guard troops, there's not a sufficiently safe way to administer in-person voting tomorrow. And then the Republican-dominated state Supreme Court overturned his executive order and the governor conceded defeat. And so people in the poorest parts of the state, the most diverse and least white parts of the state, were forced to stand in lines stretching as far as the eye could see to exercise their right to vote during a pandemic. And again, there were just five polling sites in Milwaukee, just one in the city of Waukesha. This is so wrong. This is just so wrong. This this election should have been called off. You know, they're telling us to stay in the house and, you know, stand six feet from each other. But then one of the most important times they're forcing us to come out here in a group. Stop playing politics with our lives. I just want to be very clear on this. The blood that this election is almost certainly going to shed is entirely on the hands of the GOP and its Supreme Court justices in Wisconsin. They did this to enforce voter disenfranchisement. They did it because they wanted to force Black people, poor people, Democratic strongholds to risk their lives. And they did it not because of the Democratic primary, but because there's an election for a state Supreme Court justice, and they want to make sure that the Republicans keep that position. It has a 10-year term. That's what all of this was about. We've all heard the saying, vote or die. The message here was vote and die. 
And what the early data is telling us is that this reckless election and the conditions under which people were forced to go out and vote is going to disproportionately impact African Americans and poor people. As of Tuesday, there were some 1,387 coronavirus cases in Milwaukee County. There were 51 deaths, 36 of them African Americans. That means that some 70% of the deaths in Milwaukee County from coronavirus were African Americans in a county where they make up just a quarter of the population. Last year, Milwaukee officially declared racism a public health crisis, and this pandemic has shown already that it was right in doing so. On Tuesday morning, as people were lining up for hours to vote in Milwaukee, I reached Dr. Jeanette Kowalik. She is the health commissioner for the city of Milwaukee. Dr. Kowalik, thank you very much for joining us on Intercepted. Thank you for having me. You are the public health commissioner of Milwaukee. Is it safe to encourage people to go out to the polls today in Milwaukee to vote? Well, unfortunately, it's not. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, which was the whole premise of focusing on orders that are prohibiting congregation. So we know that there's people that will be more at risk uh, for going to one of these consolidated polling sites, which is why we were very, very disheartened by the Supreme Court's ruling that the in-person election, let's be clear, because obviously there's other ways to vote, that that would still take place. Uh, We have a number of city workers that have been preparing just in case, but they'll be on site at the five um, locations and really trying to hold the line as well as make sure that they're not getting infected with COVID-19. So I'm very concerned for my staff. I'm concerned for my city, my community. We're expected to see peak uh, for COVID-19 about the 17th of April. And I'm quite confident that our peak was moved up due to holding an in-person election. And looking at what's happening across the country, um, we were one of the first to begin reporting out on race and ethnicity, and mainly because the leadership in our area. So the declaration of racism as a public health issue happened last year at the county level first, and then at the city level, we had started collecting race and ethnicity data and and made it public-facing as soon as we were able to do so, where in other jurisdictions, they have not provided that information and due to some national attention um, from policymakers as well as the community. Now that there's other jurisdictions that are starting to report out on race and ethnicity for COVID illness or cases as well as deaths. And we're seeing very similar trends to what's happening here in Milwaukee. So what's happening here is not unique. It is a reflection of racist policies and practices that have been set up from years ago and that we're still feeling today. And when we look at health disparities and distribution of many of the cases for, say, infant mortality, obesity, violence, you see very similar lead poisoning, you see very similar distributions. And we know that a lot of that is because of some of the redlining and segregation that was set up years ago. You know, we're seeing this play out today. And this pandemic is really, really magnifying what's existed and what has been lurking in our society for a long time. And honestly, I, I believe the only way to fix this in the future is moving to um, some form of reparation 
I'm really righting the wrongs because, you know, if there's a natural disaster, who's going to get hit hardest? The people that are most disadvantaged that don't have the rainy day funds or the other home to go to or various vehicles so they can, you know, use something differently if their other one is flooded or damaged. I mean, it's all connected. What we're reading from the initial statistics is that in Milwaukee County, African-Americans make up nearly half of the recorded positive cases of COVID-19 and 81% of the deaths. In Chicago, 70% of the recorded deaths have been of African-Americans. In Philadelphia, where there are more than 2,000 COVID-19 cases, Black residents make up nearly half of them. Why is this hitting Black communities so disproportionately harder than others? If there's anything about this COVID-19 situation that we can learn from right now is acutely that if you have people or you're yourself an essential worker and you have to go out in the elements, that you're more at risk for contracting this disease. We know, too, that this is difficult depending on people's living arrangements. Sometimes there's multiple families or folks living in a house or an apartment. So it makes it very difficult to remove yourself, say, if you are ill from other people. When you look at home ownership, you know, like who has their own single family house or maybe a duplex or something like that versus living in a large apartment building where there's a lot of congregation, incarcerated individuals. And we know that the disparity there who's been suffering from high rates of incarceration for various offenses, African-Americans. So, you know, there's a number of concerns that illness will spread because uh, decisions are being made or not being made that are harmful to the public, especially those that are still dealing with, grappling with the disparities due to policies and practices uh, from years ago that are still present today. In studying what the Republican lawmakers and justices in Wisconsin have rammed through in overturning Governor Avers' attempt to stop the primary and the election from going forward today, it seems to me like what the Republican Party is doing is saying, we want to force poor people, African Americans, people who live in the population centers of a largely rural state, to risk their lives to vote. And they are willing to, I'll just say it, it seems like the Republicans are willing to kill people in order to disenfranchise Black people and the city of Milwaukee from voting? We have many good people in this state and that really want to provide for their families. They want to be self-actualized. They want to live their best lives. But the politics continue to impact our ability to do that. And it's extremely disheartening where people are being forced to risk their lives to place their vote or fulfill their right as an American to vote. I mean, it's just unbelievable that we are even having this conversation right now. It's just been really disheartening, you know, being in a, on the inside and this, the conversations and the mentality of some people that unfortunately have positions of power and that are killing people by the decisions that they're making. Thank you. 
For The Atlantic, you write, quote, Without racial data, we could end up stranded in Trump's America a year after the worst pandemic in American history, flooded out of truth and justice and fairness, homeless like black Mississippians in 1927. And you quote Bessie Smith's song saying... Talk about the parallels that you see between today's pandemic and the way it's being responded to and the great Mississippi flood of 1927 or other historical analogs. By April, right around this time in in 1927, the Mississippi River, as a result of months and months of heavy rains, essentially overflooded both banks, breaking the levees at, at New Orleans all the way up the coast. And of course, the Mississippi River system is the largest river system in the United States, and tens of thousands of square miles were inundated and flooded. And as a result, hundreds of thousands of people lost their homes and their livelihood. And so many of them were driven into these flood relief camps that were overseen at the time by the Secretary of Commerce, who was Herbert Hoover. And Herbert Hoover was able to suppress reports of racism and and lynchings and essentially forcing Black people into cleanup efforts through armed guards. And simultaneously, the national media praised Hoover's relief effort. He was seen as somebody who got it right. So as a result, he became a political star. And he used that stardom to then run for president. And he ended up becoming the president of the United States in in 1928, and then promptly led the United States into the Great Depression. I mean, I see something very similar could happen, in, in which you've already seen, at least when I wrote that piece, Trump's approval ratings had risen and it was among the highest of his whole presidency. He, of course, is, is almost giving daily press conferences in which he's essentially touting himself for the great job that he's doing and his acolytes and disciples all over the country are doing something similar. What was happening in Mississippi in 19, oh, I should say really across middle America in 1927 is that Black people in particular were suffering horribly. But for many white Americans who who were not suffering horribly, who were not connected to those Black people, they were imagining that Hoover was doing a good job. And so what could similarly happen this year is you could have Black and Latino and even Asian and Native people who are who are suffering horribly, and many white Americans who are able to socially distance, and, and many white Americans who are imagining that the people who are being infected are being infected because of their own behavioral deficiencies can then end up imagining that Trump did a great job, and he's a great leader and thereby deserves to be reelected. If things go as it seems they're going to go, and we end up with a November race where the choice is between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, what does that choice say to you about the realities of the United States of America in 2020? One of the most popular talking points in American politics is this idea that the Democratic candidate, 
who can win the white swing voter is the candidate who is the most electable. And because of that, and because so many independents and, and Democrats want Trump to lose, they have, of course, clung to who they consider to be the most electable Democrat. If that Democrat who resembles the Democrat that lost in 2016 then loses, instead of those very people beginning to recognize that maybe the centrist white Democrat was not the best choice against specifically a Trump candidate, instead of them recognizing that idea is no longer sort of politically valid, instead they're going to blame the people who did not vote. Instead, they're going to blame the people who who Joe Biden alienated as a result of his history or as his refusal to adopt more of Sanders' extremely popular policies, particularly among young people. And so, again, it's going to show me that, you know, Americans are too bogged down and too blinded by their own ideology, you know, to really recognize what is best for themselves, what's best for this country. And it will essentially allow potentially for either a Trump presidency or a Biden presidency that presumably may not be able to ensure that Trump or a Trump-like candidate will never rise again. There is a a very significant problem playing out right now that state crisis standards of care plans, which in many instances were put in place years ago um, in order to prepare for a situation uh, just like the one we now find ourselves in, um, include criteria that systemically discriminate against people with disabilities. And that comes in a few different forms. Sometimes it's very explicit. Uh, For example, um, the state of Tennessee excludes people with spinal muscular atrophy who um, uh, require assistance with activities of daily living from access to critical care. Um, The uh, University of Washington Medical Center has promulgated allocation guidelines that prioritize young, otherwise healthy people over older, um, more disabled people. Um, There's a wide variety of other guidelines that lay out um, really concerning diagnostic exclusions um, that uh, place people with disabilities at a disadvantage, even if they were in a position to benefit from treatment. Now, in addition to that, we're also seeing some other very concerning criteria. Um, Often states are articulating that they will either deny or give lower priority to, or in some instances, withdraw resources from people with disabilities who are benefiting from them, uh, but may require more time in order to realize that benefit. Um, We are seeing language in some plans um, that indicate that if a person with a disability would, for example, require 10 days on a ventilator, whereas a person without an underlying disability would only require five days, 
that that person with a disability would be sent to the back of the line and would not gain access to a ventilator while uh, a non-disabled person required it. That's very, very concerning. I, I would say that we are uh, seeing um, a, a fundamental challenge to the premise of disability rights law, that sometimes in order to treat people equally, you have to allow people to access additional resources, recognizing the need for reasonable modifications on the basis of disability. And you, you point out in your op-ed, you, you mentioned a number of um, uh, various physical types of, of disabilities and health impairments, but you also point out in your op-ed, the state of Alabama actually calls for denying ventilators to people with developmental disabilities. So it's a range of types of disabilities that that are, are, are actually named and excluded in some of these types of policies. Alice, you, you were about to offer something as well. Yeah, I should jump in and say that. You know, this isn't only happening in the United States. You know, in uh, the UK, uh, there's a National Institute for Clinical Excellence, and they have a guideline on clinical care that's, their assessment is based on a measure of frailty. So, you know, their assess their clinical care assessment is based on if a disabled person who needs personal care, it's often thought that they may not benefit from treatment, which I think is just bananas. So this is definitely uh, something that's not just happening in the United States, but all over the world as so many countries are dealing with the pandemic. And Sam, I, I want to bring you in as sort of our, our resident lawyer and, and law professor here. You actually just this past week, just a few days ago, published a paper specifically looking at whether hospitals can and should withhold ventilators from COVID-19 patients who have pre-existing disabilities. And, and the paper really kind of more broadly gets into the very question of whether or not um, disability-based discrimination in treatment is something that legally can go on in the United States. Talk a little bit about um, that paper and, and, and ultimately what you argue. Yeah. And, and so this paper obviously was inspired by, you know, everything we're talking about here and the way that these guidelines for providing life-saving treatment, which, you know, have been on a shelf somewhere um, in many states and in many hospitals are all of a sudden, you know, very clear and present for, uh, for making life or death decisions uh, for for people with disabilities, um, and and we've 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 started to see as the hospitals get closer to capacity, really. Uh, hospitals and health systems beginning to think about how, how are we going to, how are we going to allocate the, you know, how are we going to allocate these life-saving treatments? Um, and, and so the basic argument is, I mean, so first of all, one thing that's clear is the Americans with Disabilities Act, as well as other anti-discrimination statutes, clearly apply to medical treatment decisions, right? I mean, the Americans with Disabilities Act applies to everything a state and local government does. 
Uh, it applies to public hospital, public and private hospitals. The Rehabilitation Act, which also prohibits discrimination based on disability, applies to every hospital that receives Medicaid funds, which is pretty much every hospital. And the Affordable Care Act has a non-discrimination provision as well. Um, but nonetheless, despite the longstanding existence of anti-discrimination provisions governing health care, um, health care systems tend to at least start with the premise that they operate autonomously, that these are decisions about professional judgment as opposed to decisions about discrimination. So one of the things I wanted to do with this paper is just make very clear to people from the beginning, uh, look, these laws are there. They prohibit discrimination on the basis of disability and they govern you. It's not just your own internal decisions that matter. It's also you know, a democratic decision that our society has made against discrimination. Uh, and so what does that mean? You know, what what does what does it mean to say no disability discrimination here? Um, and, and in particular, as you said, what I'm focused on is, you know, when when a hospital or, or, or a health system makes a decision to deny someone treatment for one condition because they already have some other kind of disability. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's done under the rubric of, you know, this is battlefield triage. We need to save the greatest number of lives. Um, most of the time, that's actually not the decision that's being made here, right? Most of the time, it actually is a ventilator that can go to one person or a ventilator that can go to another. Um, and, and, you know, so it's a choice of which life to save instead of, you know, saving 20 lives versus saving one life. Uh, and when these decisions are being made, they're often being made based on, if you look at the protocols that, that Ari was talking about um, and the excluded conditions, the conditions that lead people to be deprioritized, deprioritized for life-saving care, um, what you often find is the decisions to deprioritize particular conditions like developmental disabilities um, or, or other kinds of disabilities are, are not based on the inability of a person with that condition to benefit from a ventilator or benefit from treatment for COVID-19. Instead, they're based on assumptions about how long somebody's going to live with or without treatment um, and how good a life they're going to have and how, how the quality of their life is going to be affected by their disability. So you see a lot in these, in these policies um, references to we'd prefer to save young and healthy versus old and frail people. We'd prefer to save uh, people, uh, you know, we, in, the, in Washington state, it says consider, consider uh, the, the baseline functional status of the person who is seeking treatment. So you want to know what are their cognitive abilities. Obviously, that and, and that's specifically called out in the plan. That has nothing to do with benefit from the treatment. What that has to do with is a normative judgment that the healthcare systems are making themselves that the quality of life with cognitive impairments is less than the quality of life without that. And so we want to allocate treatments to people who have will ha have a higher quality of life. And one of the reasons we have the ADA and all these non-discrimination statutes is because there's widespread bias, both in the medical community and out of the medical community, um, against people with disabilities. Um, there's a really notable difference in the perceptions of quality of life with a disability between people without disabilities and people with disabilities. Disabled people don't think 
on average, their, their lives are of any lower quality than anyone else. Non-disabled people think having a life with a disability would be of incredibly low quality. And that's been consistently shown in study after study after study. Um, and so what the ADA is essentially saying here is you can't rest on this non-disabled normative judgment about the quality of life in denying someone life-saving care just based on their disability. And, and you know, there's also an issue with uh, predictions about the quantity of life, about life expectancy of people with disabilities. Um, and so, you know, so also here, if the idea is because you have an underlying disability, we don't think you're going to live as long if you get the treatment. You know, unless it's totally obvious that like someone is at the end stage of cancer or something like that, and they're going to die tomorrow with or without COVID-19 treatment. But if you're talking about, you know, the, the cases that, that we have here, and, and I'm, I'm one of the counsel who's been challenging a number of these states' policies, um, what, what we have here are actually assumptions that, well, the life expectancy with a developmental disability is on average less than the life expectancy without. Um, and... It's also been demonstrated over and over and over again that medical professionals have consistent biases that affect their prognoses of people with underlying disabilities. And so that's something the ADA and anti-discrimination laws also aim to fight against by saying you can't discriminate against people with underlying disabilities. There's a boilerplate passage that the Associated Press likes to insert into its stories on the coronavirus, as in their March 30th piece, under the headline, What You Need to Know About the Virus Outbreak. It's the first language after the heading, What You Need to Know. Quote, For most people, the coronavirus causes mild or moderate symptoms, such as fever and cough, that clear up in two to three weeks. For some, especially older adults and people with existing health problems, it can cause more severe illness, including pneumonia and death. The vast majority of people recover, close quote. Well, that sounds reassuring, doesn't it? Especially if you're not an older adult or a person with existing health problems, you might even be thinking, what's the big deal? Well, for one thing, existing health problems are extremely common. Half of American adults have high blood pressure, one of the most prevalent pre-existing conditions among COVID-19 fatalities, according to a study of Italian deaths from the disease. Other common illnesses associated with coronavirus deaths include diabetes, which affects 9% of American adults, and coronary heart disease, which affects 7%. Altogether, according to the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, up to half of all non-elderly Americans have pre-existing health conditions. So the some that are liable to more severe illness may amount to most. African Americans, by the way, disproportionately suffer from high blood pressure and diabetes, as a race-aware media would be pointing out. A Centers for Disease Control report looked at domestically acquired cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. from February 12th to March 16th, a total of 4,200 cases, more or less. Of the patients whose ages were known, 70% were under 65. In this group, the hospitalization rates for patients 20 to 44 was at least 14%. For patients 45 to 54 and 55 to 64, it was at least 21%. Among the elderly, the hospitalization rate was about half again as high. 
only patients under 20 had a hospitalization rate comparable to that of influenza, with at least 1.6% of cases in this group going to the hospital. Almost a quarter of the hospitalized patients required intensive care. Of these, nearly half were under 65. Only patients under 20, the report found, never needed intensive care. And some of those who require intensive care may never recover full lung capacity. These figures need to be understood in the context of the limits of the U.S. hospital system, which has less than a million beds and less than 80,000 intensive care beds. Even a small fraction of adults, elderly or otherwise, catching the coronavirus would risk totally overwhelming U.S. health care. The CDC's summary of its data sends a much different message than AP's boilerplate. Quote, COVID-19 can result in severe disease, including hospitalization, admission to an intensive care unit, and death, especially among older adults. Everyone can take actions, such as social distancing, to help slow the spread of COVID-19 and protect older adults from severe illness. Close quote. As for AP's claim that the vast majority of people recover... Of the roughly 140,000 U.S. cases to date, some 4,500 have recovered and 2,500 have died. The outcome of the rest has yet to be determined. In China, the only country where a major outbreak seems to have been brought under control, 93% of some 81,000 cases have been resolved, and of those resolved cases, 4% were fatal. By way of comparison, which AP's glib assurance to the vast majority fails to provide, the seasonal flu kills 0.1 to 0.2% of the people who come down with it. In China, officials moved quickly to pause economic activity and tested aggressively so asymptomatic carriers could be identified and isolated, preventing hospitals from being overwhelmed on a national level. The United States has so far failed to follow this example, and our major national news service lulling readers into a false sense of security only delays the time when we will begin to do so. Disabled people, as Alice references, did not make the decisions about how many ventilators this country would have ready in the event of a pandemic. Disabled people were not the ones who um, made the choice to underinvest in the uh, strategic national stockpile. Disabled people were not the ones that made the choice uh, to underinvest in our hospital system. I think there's a very real risk uh, of us making the decision that uh, we are going to prioritize uh, the non-disabled over the disabled, um, both in general, but especially within the context of the reality that it is the non-disabled majority um, that made the choice to uh, not invest in health systems capacity prior to this point. So I think there's there's a real issue when you have um, a situation where uh, many uh, key decision makers, um, you know, can be confident that they will not be the ones most likely to um, be adversely impacted by the consequences of their underinvestment. And then just to take things a step beyond that. Oh, go ahead. 
No, no, no. Go ahead, Ari. I'm ranting a minute. No, just to take things a step beyond that, I think we just have to reinforce the idea that our civil rights laws cannot be waived, even in the context of an emergency. And I think that's just a fantastic way to Sam. I want to bring you back in on this point because you noted before and really a major line of your, of your paper that we were talking about just a few minutes ago is this this notion of failure of democratic legitimacy. Um, and, and what Ari was just speaking about, you you um, I'm going to read from your paper a, a quote here. You write the combination of both of these policies allowing scarcity of ventilators while imposing the life or death costs of that scarcity most heavily on disabled people bespeaks a failure of democratic legitimacy for the very reason Ari was just noting that it was not disabled people who actually were at the table making these decisions. I think that's exactly right. And, 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 and that's precisely the problem. You know, I mean, what we have here is sort of a two-step. The, ar- the argument is, is, is sort of a two-step. You know, at time one, uh, there's a decision made by, by society through a process from which many disabled people are excluded for all sorts of reasons to say, we're going to invest only a certain amount in our healthcare system. We're going to invest only a certain amount in preparing for health emergencies. Um, and then at time two, when the emergency happens, uh, the, the folks who are running the system say, well, there's just nothing we can do. We just don't have enough ventilators. I'm sorry that that means that uh, disabled people have to die, but you know, greatest good for the greatest number. And, and so the point that I try to make, or one of the points I try to make in the paper you're talking about, and the point Ari just made is, you know, if you had a system that was fairly including people with disabilities in it, it wouldn't make both of those decisions. You know, it might make a decision that said, look, we have other things to spend our money on than, you know, providing adequate health care. I would happen to think that would be a bad decision. But, you know, you could make a democratically legitimate decision like that. But then it would say, the costs of that decision would be shared equally. But when we have a, when, when we have a society in which, as Ari says perfectly, you know, the people who are making the decisions can be reasonably certain that they won't bear the greatest brunt of those decisions. The downside they can offload onto disabled people who are historically disadvantaged, who are still uh, consistently excluded from the democratic process in many significant ways. Um, then what, then we have a, a deep failure of democracy. And one of the points of the ADA and our other disability discrimination laws is it's a moment when our society um, and particularly the non-disabled part of society was saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, it's unfair to fail to consider people with disabilities as fully equal members of our community. And so we need to put some rules in place to constrain what seems like the natural tendency of a lot of people without disabilities to either just not think of disabled people or not want to think about disabled people um, and, and so end up putting a lot of the burdens of public policy on them. Uh, so, so that's why it's so important that at a time like this, we really take seriously the principles of the ADA. Ari, one of the things that you take really you take on head on in your in your New York Times op-ed is um, is the straw man, right? The straw man who says, "Well, you know, we have to make hard choices, so why not prioritize the people who will live the longest?" You know, et cetera. All the all the criteria, all the conventional wisdom that that, that you guys have been dispensing with here. 
but you take on the very question of uh, that, that, that no one seems to really want to ask out loud or answer out loud for sure, which is what would happen if we allowed disability discrimination in the rationing of care in a moment like this? Um, uh, what would happen on the other side? And, and you have some incredibly powerful words um, that you answer that question with. You say, by permitting clinicians to discriminate against those who require more resources, perhaps more lives would be saved. But the ranks of the survivors would look very different, biased towards those who locked, uh, oh, excuse me, biased towards those who lacked disabilities before the pandemic. Equity would have been sacrificed in the name of efficiency. Talk a little bit about what you what you mean to convey there. So what we're wrestling with as a society right now is whether or not we can ascribe any value to complying with non-discrimination law. Are we obligated to seek out this uh, ruthlessly utilitarian goal of the greatest good for the greatest number, um, regardless of the consequences uh, to us as a society and to um, more resource intensive groups? Or have we as a society made some kind of judgment that we hold certain principles like non-discrimination to be sacred um, and something that we are going to defend even in the context of inadequate resources. Um, I, I think that's really important to grapple with at the moment. Um, I, I, um, I also think that uh, you know we are not necessarily obligated to abandon non-discrimination law. In fact, I think we're obligated not to abandon non-discrimination law in order to simply maximize the number of lives saved. There are distributional consequences here as well. Um, you know, uh, and, and that's something that uh, I, I think people um, intuitively understand at some level, um, uh, but are often reluctant to um, question uh, the sometimes non-transparent process of clinical judgment to, to really enforce. Um, but we really have to. I mean, first, people with disabilities deserve protection um, in and of themselves. Disability is a protected class. But second, you know, um, uh, African-Americans, low-income Americans, um, you know, many other marginalized groups are more likely to have underlying impairments going into the hospital. And so, uh, you know, taking that utilitarian approach really um, creates a serious problem that uh, those who are already at the uh, greatest disadvantage are going to be pushed to the back of the line in accessing scarce medical resources. And once again, let's be frank, um, you know, uh, marginalized people are not responsible for the situation we find ourselves in. It's uh, in the majority that really have placed us in this situation, the non-disabled majority, and also, you know, quite frankly, um, the uh, irresponsible nature of some of our leaders. In some instances to this day, you know, just yesterday, um, uh, the president went on uh, Fox News, um, which seems to be where he uh, uh, makes all of his major policy pronouncements, that and Twitter, um, and indicated that he simply did not believe 
um, the governor of New York and other governors that uh, were highlighting the the severe ventilator shortages that were currently taking place. Uh, it was a direct quote from the president of the United States as of yesterday, quote, I don't believe you need 40,000 or 30,000 ventilators. You know, you go into major hospitals sometimes, they'll have two ventilators. And now all of a sudden they're saying, can we order 30,000 ventilators? I have a feeling that a lot of the numbers that are being said in some areas are just bigger than they're going to be. That's a quote from the president of the United States. Okay, <laughs> this is this is not uh, uh, an inevitable Shortage. This is a shortage that, as Sam articulated, was the result of policy decisions, um, and it is uh, just the height of of hypocrisy to say that we are now going to send marginalized people to the back of the line because we, as a country, didn't decide to get our act uh, together in time. As one would expect when the president directs the anxieties of a frightened nation towards foreign scapegoats, the U.S. is in the midst of a wave of anti-Asian racism. A Korean woman was punched in the face in midtown Manhattan by a woman shouting, You've got coronavirus, you Asian expletive. Two Hmong men were refused service by multiple Indiana hotels on the grounds that they were likely diseased. And Vietnamese-American students were bullied at their California school by other kids yelling coronavirus. There was condemnation for Trump's unapologetic China virus racism. But as Alan McLeod noted for FAIR.org, outlets like The New York Times and CNN had been using the same or similar phrases for weeks. Worse, corporate media seem to have accepted Trump's premise that China is uniquely to blame and must be held accountable for its sins. At the March 16th Democratic presidential debate, CNN asked both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden to describe the consequences China should face. China appears to be one of the few countries to get a grip on the virus, reporting a handful of new local cases this week. They've begun sending doctors and medical supplies to other countries. For much of the media, that just proves their Orientalist tropes about the Chinese being inherently sneaky and untrustworthy. Donating ventilators and masks to Italy, Japan, the Philippines, Iran, CNN says that's China trying to deflect blame and rehabilitate its image, trying to curry favor by helping. The Guardian explains it's China's propaganda machine trying to rewrite history by using aid as soft power and a propaganda tool. The idea that the Chinese might genuinely wish to stop the rest of the world from being ill or dying appears almost unthinkable, so strong is the xenophobia in much of the reporting. The World Health Organization has praised China's response, but so what? The Financial Times calls it slow, hesitant, sluggish. Or else they did too much. The New York Times critiqued the country's sledgehammer approach that Slate called overly aggressive and ineffective. It seems they should have gone for a voluntary system of restrictions instead. The Guardian was conflicted, undecided whether China was botching its response or else crushing this disease as firmly as it crushes dissent.
In some, McLeod writes, media are unsure whether China is doing too much or not enough, but they do agree whatever it's doing, it's bad. So we were working, clearly a television crew working. And a man walked up and he said something right next to my producer. That's my colleague, Kyung Law, senior national correspondent for CNN. As I asked him to repeat himself, I said, excuse me, sir, can I help you? It was dawning on me what he had said. Um, he had used a derogatory term, um, you, you know, talked about a long-held xenophobic stereotype about immigrants. And it was just surreal. It's not uh, something that I'd experienced to my face in a very long time. Kyung is Korean-American and based in Los Angeles. She herself was targeted. It's still really hard for me to explain how it makes me feel. I joked about it on Twitter and said, if you're going to be racist, please be accurate. I'm Korean, not Chinese. Not that that matters at all. It doesn't matter at all. And she's not alone. San Francisco State University found that news about coronavirus discrimination increased by 50% across the country from February 9th through March 7th. That's just one month. The lead researcher on the project told the New York Times that this is only the tip of the iceberg, meaning only the most serious cases would be reported, and there are likely many more cases out there. Even on social media, we're seeing the same thing. Just last week, Eugenie Gray, a blogger in New York, was out walking her dog when a passerby kicked the dog. She described what happened on Instagram. I'm sorry, I wasn't going to cry when I started recording it. I just started crying right now. Um, I'm just so upset because who the kicks dogs? You guys, I'm not a virus. It's not just individual attacks. Earlier this year, with only a handful of novel coronavirus cases in America, Chinese restaurants were already suffering. In New York City's Chinatown, restaurant owner Rose Wu told us many of her customers canceled their Chinese New Year bookings last minute. That was just as the city of Wuhan in China was going into lockdown. Rose says some customers told her they canceled out of fear of catching the virus because she and her staff are Chinese. By mid-February, Rose's business was down some 70 to 80 percent. That was weeks before most of America started staying at home. Unfortunately, the list goes on and on. Here's what President Trump had to say when a reporter asked him about it. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people it comes say from it's China. racist. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. That's why comes from China. That was on March 18th. Five days later, President Trump reversed course. He opened a press conference on Sunday with this statement. It's very important that we totally protect our Asian American community in the United States and all around the world. They're amazing people. 
And the spreading of the virus is not their fault in any way, shape or form. The president rebuking racism is a welcome development and the right thing to do. For some Asian Americans, like my colleague Kyung Law, the damage has been done. When certain members of the political establishment began using the term Chinese virus, when Fox News uh, repeatedly called it Chinese virus, that's when I noticed an uptick in the level of hate on social media. That is not a mistake. I, I, I think that you can absolutely show that there is a correlation. Merlin Chow Kuan Yun is a historian who studies inequality and activism at the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I mean, words and language, they really matter, and they frame the larger public imagination towards this issue. And so I hope we can remember the history of blaming immigrants and racial minorities for diseases and avoid reviving it too much this time. As you heard him say, this isn't the first time that an infectious disease outbreak has been linked to certain immigrant groups. It's a pattern that has been repeated in history. So in the mid-19th century, for example, shortly before the Civil War, it was actually the Irish who were often blamed for cholera epidemics. In the early 20th century, uh, during a polio epidemic, it was Italians who got scapegoated a lot. Uh, Jews from Eastern Europe were often blamed for tuberculosis, as were African Americans. That kind of xenophobia didn't just manifest in individual violence but also in institutional policies like the Immigration Act of 1924, which severely limited immigration from Asia and parts of Europe. If you go back and read the proceedings and debates of federal commissions that were deliberating um, these kinds of immigrant restrictions, you see all sorts of references to epidemics and immigrants and sickness and, and the threats that they pose. Thankfully, people have been calling out the racism they are witnessing. Last week, Actor Tai Ma posted a video as he washed his hands. Acts of violence against Asian Americans will not stop the spread of this virus. It's part of an online campaign called Wash the Hate, which aims to raise awareness about the harassment that people are now facing. So, the next time you wash your hands, wash out the hate that you may have for your fellow Americans. Hate will get you sick, even if the virus doesn't. His sentiments are being echoed by other celebrities and government officials. Even comedians are talking about it. Here's Untreat Tran, performing at a comedy show called Asian Strike Back earlier this month. The coronavirus has just opened the floodgates where people will be racist to Asians, you know? There's one that's very popular. It's, oh, like Asians, we like to eat dogs. So stupid. You guys know how expensive a dog is? <laughs> but even comedy can't erase the hurt being felt by many in our country. I asked my colleague, Kyung, what advice did she have for people out there? Here's what she said. It is a virus that sees no race, that sees no boundaries. And if we do not treat this uniformly as a public, this is going to get the better of us. That's what I would say. We are all the same when we are fighting this thing. So we better start acting like one or else we're not going to get through this. And let's start here. 
We're already seeing throughout the country instances of discrimination, of bullying, of other kinds of actions against Chinese Americans, Asians Americans, because the disease did begin in China. There's an association with that. What do you think about this? What are you seeing out there already? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's so incredibly important that it exists out in the world in a time of so much untruth and disinformation. But there's no question, Ron, that there are really serious civil rights implications for COVID-19 on this country and in the world right now. On the discrimination front, we have seen a whole host of ways in which the Asian American community around the country has been targeted, especially young kids. Uh, and for example, in San um, Fernando, California, a 16-year-old Asian American boy was physically attacked at school because he was accused of having the coronavirus. Uh, in New York, a woman was wearing a face mask and was believed to be Asian, and she was physically and verbally assaulted in a subway station. And then kind of more broadly, there's been an economic impact. Asian American businesses were seeing a significant decline in customers before there was active social distancing. And so these are some of the ways in which we have seen, uh, you know, the impact, kind of the discriminatory impact as a result of this disease and this epidemic. Well, you know, one thing we like to say on this podcast is, of course, the disease strikes humans, not any particular racial or ethnic group. There's no reason to discriminate against anyone. It's against the law, and it's also not based on science. If people see an incident like the ones you're describing, bullying or some other kind of incident, what should they do about it? Well, um, these kinds of acts are against the law, and um, they're also just so kind of counter to what we stand for in the United States of America, that if you are a witness or a bystander to this kind of incident, you should speak up. We need people to stand up in schools, for instance, if students and parents should be reporting it to their schools. Schools have an obligation under federal law to ensure that all students are able to attend school uh, free from harassment and discrimination. If there's an actual hate crime and physical attack, uh, people should be calling the police or reporting it to the FBI. There should be no tolerance for this kind of uh, discrimination. And I think all of us have a responsibility to do what we can. We've got robust federal and state laws in place to protect vulnerable communities in this instance. I've really been struck by some of the media coverage and even really uh, places I really respect, like the New York Times had a piece maybe a week or two ago now, and they were reporting on the healthcare worker who was returning from Iran to New York City. And the picture that accompanied the story actually had nothing to do with that case. It was a picture of one of the best dim sum places in Chinatown, but it was really reinforcing that anti-Chinese xenophobia that we're already seeing. You know, what are you supposed to do if you're a business who is suffering from the way this is being covered in the media? Well, I think the media has an enormous responsibility and that kind of incident um, it should not happen. Uh, there's all kinds of ways in which people get implicit and explicit messages that can reinforce stigmatization of particular communities. And I think the economic impact at this time right now is being felt across communities and frankly, across uh, you know, national economies. Maybe the irony will be that in the social distancing phase of this, we will understand our common humanity and the common kind of um, uh, vulnerabilities that we face, not only as individuals and communities, but frankly, um, across nations right now. 
Vanita, what's been the history of this kind of scapegoating and xenophobia? You know, how has this behavior played out with prior infectious disease outbreaks? I mean, we've seen the cycle of um, racism, ignorance, fear, kind of causing scapegoating of particular communities during these kinds of outbreaks historically. You know, even just recently, we've we've been hearing from workers in retail, hospitality, and healthcare sectors that are um, conf- hearing from customers and patients saying that they don't want to be treated by Asian American staff. We've heard that historically in these contexts um, in the Ebola virus uh, time, and Ron obviously knows this better than anyone. There was an effort by the federal government across agencies to message out the importance of. Um, fighting any discrimination uh, against people from African nations, um, and the role of the of the federal government, of local and elected officials, uh, faith leaders in messaging out, both during Spanish flu, during Ebola, and today, is really important to kind of stand up against this kind of scapegoating. I think one of the things that is really difficult right now is many of us feel that the federal government and the administration are not doing what they should be in response to this virus. And then it is that much more incumbent on all of us to be out there pushing out the importance of fighting against discrimination and targeting of any community at this time. So have we seen civil rights protections change over time in response to infectious disease outbreaks? Well, I think over time, there's been a much greater understanding of how uh, civil rights protections actually include protections against um, discrimination for people who either have infectious diseases or may be prone to infectious diseases, but certainly protections include these category of problems that schools and hospitals and healthcare workers and restaurant owners are facing. But in the end, the laws on the books are only as powerful and meaningful as the kind of people uh, are to enforce them and to norm them in their everyday lives. And that is a really important thing. So the work to kind of make sure that communities and individuals are protected against discrimination at this time requires kind of all of us uh, being mindful and standing up and speaking out against discrimination when we see it um, and and calling upon our leaders to kind of really double down and reinforce uh, that message. We've just heard clips today, starting with coronavirus fact versus fiction, explaining why some demographic groups are more vulnerable to the pandemic than others. The takeaway in two clips discussed the unconscious bias at work within the medical profession that can put the health of people of color at risk. The Daily Social Distancing Show discussed the black immunity myth. Intercepted addressed the election in Wisconsin and the willingness to put lives at risk to try to suppress the vote. It didn't work, by the way. The liberal candidate for the Supreme Court won by a wide margin. Intercepted also spoke with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi about race and historical parallels to the pandemic. Off-kilter in two parts discussed the needs of disabled persons in a pandemic and the need for society to prepare accordingly. 
Counterspin explained that disabled people and those with pre-existing conditions actually make up the majority of the population, and therefore we should be a little bit more concerned about them. Counterspin addressed the trend of anti-Chinese framing in the media. Coronavirus fact versus fiction looked at anti-Asian racism in the public. And finally, we just heard Epidemic discuss anti-Asian discrimination and how this is just the latest historical example. At the end of today's show, I'm going to continue discussing stoicism in response to some listener comments, and members are going to be hearing even more on that and probably some other stuff in a bonus episode to hear all of our bonus content, which includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode. Sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash left. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in on your two uh, bonus episodes there regarding stoicism. And um, I have two reactions. And one, I'm going to rewind to what my reaction would have been before this pandemic and the allowances I'll make for it now. So before the pandemic, my response would have been somewhat guttural and to say, if you need to think about bad things to happen to appreciate the stuff you have now, you need to check your privilege and you need to figure out a little bit of how you're giving back to the community because it's not hard to open up your eyes and look around and see what crap other people are going through to appreciate what you have. Many years I've worked with homeless people who have such an appreciation for the basics of life and their generosity in the most part is, is phenomenal and supportive and amazing you know my answer would be go to a soup kitchen for a day and don't just serve food but sit down and share a meal with someone get to know them talk to them find out their story you will have a an immense appreciation for the fortunes that you have i don't know if i ever called this in but it was like two years ago my truck was broken into and It was somebody stealing granola bars and a wrench out of my truck. And, you know, people were like, you should call the police and everything. And I was just like, you know what, man? Somebody was hungry and they found food. And, all right, like, stuff happens. That's okay. And it's like you appreciate for what you have by looking around at what other people are going through. Because that's the way to do it, I think. Um, You give back a little bit and you feel good about it. And so my response you know, now, post-pandemic, would be, well, all right, you can't go out to a soup kitchen and everything else, but you can still find ways to see and help other people. And I know there are certainly times are tough for many people in many aspects, but it doesn't have to be much. It can be leaving a note for the mailman to say, hey, thank you for showing up for work today and bringing me some mail. There's so many things you can do to take a look at and make someone else's day better that also makes you feel good. As an essential employee, I go to work every day, not because right now I need the money. I am fortunate to be in a place where I could take a month off and be okay. But I go to work every day because there are people out there that need me, and it makes me feel good to be able to be supportive and helpful to healthcare workers. And so I want to do my part. And that's almost selfish to me to feel good about doing that. So 
anyway, that's that's my response. I don't think I need to think about my kids passing away and so forth. I mean, I've done enough of that over the years. I mean, there have been times where it's been critical and real, but I don't think I need to think of that to appreciate where I am. I just need to open up my eyes, check my privilege, and look around. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Stay awesome, wash your hands, and don't touch your face. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks one last time to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who's been helping us gather clips to make this show possible for the past year, but is leaving to pursue uh, full-time employment with benefits, which could not have come at a better time for him. So, Joel, we wish you well, and thank you for all of your work. Thanks also to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called in to the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can send us a voice memo by email or simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So in response to Alan, we're having an incredibly minor semantic difference. It's not even a difference of opinion. What Alan described is an incredibly stoic way of living and acting in the world and and perceiving his his relation to everyone else. And and so I, I really just think it's a misunderstanding to, to say, you know, negative visualization sounds like a thing that if you think you need it, then you've got a problem and you should check your privilege. Actually to say check your privilege, that, that's a good way of describing negative visualization. I had never thought of it in those terms, but it's pretty much the same thing. To check your privilege is to take the time to adjust your perspective about your relative circumstances to gain a better understanding of your position in the world. And negative visualization is that exact thing. That is what that is. So Alan's basically saying like, Hey, if you've lost perspective on your relative privilege, then you'd better check your privilege and regain some perspective. Yeah, I know exactly that that is the recommendation. And so the recommendation that I gave, because it's a mental practice from this, you know, philosophical tradition is to do a visualization. And the only difference with what Alan is saying is that he is in a variety of positions and, and, you know, volunteers in such a way that he he gets it firsthand and there's nothing wrong with that it's fantastic it's great he's obviously a great person who does great things and cares deeply about helping other people and again that is a very stoic thing the the, the philosophy goes into all of that too it's about you know being your brother's keeper it it, it addresses all of that but as a personal practice you have this negative visualization tool as something that you can pull out at any moment of any day, any time ever. So you don't have to go and volunteer at a soup kitchen and speak with a homeless person in order to get that perspective. That's fantastic. That helps. Of course, that'll, that'll have a massive impact on a, on a person in their perspective. That's like a hypercharged version of negative visualization. The mental tool is just to be able to tap into that perspective anytime you want ever. So often, you know, the, the response, and I think Alan is sort of along these lines, the, the response to, to this often comes from the framing of like, if you're so well off, 
that you need a mental exercise to get yourself to not feel bad, even though you're super well off, then like that's a sounds like a personal problem. But the thing is, we are evolutionarily driven to overconsume, for instance. And so this is called hedonic adaptation. And that's how you get people who have a private jet, but they know someone who has two private jets. And so they're sad that they only have one. Like that is the, the natural end point of, you know, when you're a, a hunter gatherer and then you learn about farming and you realize you could store food and it could last you longer. You think, Oh, that's great. I'm going to store this food and then I'll have more security. And having more security is evolutionarily beneficial. And so we have this instinct that there is no such thing as enough because more always translates to more security in our mind. So, so that's sort of how we're wired. We are wired to overconsume and have this hedonic adaptation to always want more, to never be satisfied with what we have. It's why humans are taking over and destroying the world and the habitat we live in. So this mental exercise is a tool that recognizes that truth and tries to overcome it. And by uh, taking the time to think about what we have and imagining not having it, it helps us appreciate what we have and short circuit that instinct to always want something new or better or the next generation or you know, additional versions of, or, you know, wh whatever it is. But there is the other side of this, the spectrum. I, I made a point to say this, but we didn't explain it in detail. I said that this is a, a tool that can be used by everyone from, you know, the billionaire in the mansion to the homeless person on the street. So here's another quick quote uh, from, from this uh, book about stoicism. It says, Stoicism is by no means a rich person's philosophy. Those who enjoy a comfortable and affluent life can benefit from the practice of Stoicism, but so can those who are impoverished. In particular, although their poverty will prevent them from doing many things, it will not preclude them from practicing negative visualization. Consider the person who has been reduced to possession of only a loincloth. His circumstances could be worse. He could lose the loincloth. He would do well, say the Stoics, to reflect on this possibility. Suppose then that he loses his loincloth. As long as he retains his health, his circumstances could again be worse, a point worth considering. And if his health deteriorates, he can be thankful he's still alive. It is hard to imagine a person who could not somehow be worse off. It is therefore hard to imagine a person who could not benefit from the practice of negative visualization. So, Clearly, it's not just for the well-off, and it actually is particularly for anyone who is or, or may face hardship. That's why we brought it up amid a pandemic. There's a lot of hardship on the way for a lot of people, and I wanted to introduce this concept to people in case they could get some benefit uh, from it in a time when they may face some hardship. So it's not just about figuring out how to appreciate your you know, affluent, fantastic life. It is also about dealing with very difficult circumstances. There's a very famous example that gets used all the time with modern Stoics discussing it. James Stockdale was a fighter pilot in the Vietnam War. He was shot down. He was a prisoner in Vietnam. And 
I'm going to be talking about it more on, on the bonus episode for members, but he credits stoicism and, and these psychological tools with helping him survive that ordeal. So again, it's not just about remembering, well, I have things so well uh, that I need to remind myself how well I have it. it. You can be in the worst possible situation and benefit from that. And some people, I expect some listeners of this show are going to go through hard times due to this pandemic. And it is certainly possible that stoicism could help. But, uh, you know, Alan's idea that, you know, hey, you don't need this sort of negative visualization in order to get this, just go volunteer at a soup kitchen. And, you know, admittedly, you can't do that now, but you know, that that's where his mind went. It reminded me of another comment that I got. Dan wrote in uh, by email, uh, comparing stoicism to Buddhism. And he, he, you know, he basically makes favorable comparisons and understands that there's a lot of crossover between the two, but his his framing of it, of it is sort of along those lines too and and um i mean he definitely practices buddhism and, and sort of my my impression is he thinks it's a better approach so uh, so dan says there are some interesting overlapping ideas between buddhism and the stoics especially the notion of impermanence this is really important in the buddhist view of the world so whether things are going great or terrible you seek to remain on a steady path and not get swept up in the moment emotionally one difference however is that buddhism does not suggest that you imagine awful outcomes to help you deal with possible difficulties that might come up and just i want to pause here for a moment to say that one of the arguments for stoicism is, is that it not only buffers you against negative eventualities, it also is geared toward heightening your appreciation of the otherwise mundane. You know, we gave the example of how, you know, a, a stoic using their, these mental practices could find great joy and appreciation in a simple water glass. And and so the the Buddhist view that you should remain sort of steady and, and a, a, you know a little bit disconnected whether things are going great or terribly feels less good because you know I, I think the Stoics uh or or at least modern Stoics at least the way I imagine using the practice when things are going great it can help you supercharge your appreciation of it whereas a buddhist view may tamp down your appreciation anyways continuing dan writes instead there's a whole realm of practice especially meditation that allows you to take a detached perspective on what's going through your mind to put it simply pain and difficulties are inevitable but you can lessen and even minimize the suffering by realizing that much of that suffering is actually your internal angst meditation is a practice buddhists and meditators in general talk about training the mind that builds a detachment from your thoughts, allowing you to understand that thoughts are not you. This is extremely helpful in building a sense of self that doesn't get swept up too much in emotions of a moment. So unlike the Stoics, you don't have to play mind games to be able to deal with distress philosophically. Instead, you do the daily work of training your mind through meditation and other practices. The Zen tradition in particular has all kinds of arts associated with it, such as archery, painting, and calligraphy, yoga, tai chi, and qui-gon 
are similar practices. And so uh, like, like Alan's suggestion that instead of doing negative visualization, you go volunteer at a soup kitchen, this feels sort of similar. Like instead of doing something that takes 15 to 30 seconds to get this, you know, greater appreciation, adopt a years or lifelong practice of meditation and training the mind to create a detached perspective. Look, of course, that's going to be good. It's going to work for a lot of people, but it takes dedication. It takes time. I mean, like I literally meditated today. I'm in favor of these things, but they are hard. They take time. You you don't get the effect uh, right away. It takes training. And so we brought this up in the midst of a pandemic and mentioned the thing that to me works the fastest. It works immediately. If you try it, it immediately shows you uh, the benefits. Whereas Buddhist meditation may, may give you similar benefits, but takes a long time. So it's, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's, it's sort of like you've fallen in the deep end of a pool and someone is suggesting that you take swim lessons. Like, no, 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 no. You're in an emergency. You got to deal with that right now. How do you deal with the emergency? Yeah. Of, of course, ultimately you want to take swim lessons and get to the point where being thrown in the deep end of a pool isn't a problem for you because you have a detached uh, perspective on that. But uh, I mean, I don't even think it's a, a fair comparison that, to say that stoicism or negative visualization are like just for emergency practices uh, or you know emergency instances. I also describe them as a practice that that improves over time and it becomes more natural over time, and you can get this like downright sunny disposition because it becomes a habit and you're constantly just like think you're can be thinking about how the mundane is great and how the great is unbelievably fantastic and simultaneously cultivating an empathy for things that are not good. And then you can understand just as Alan was saying to take action on those things that are not good is also good. It is selfish altruism to take action on things that are bad for other people and society, and and you can uh, help benefit society and yourself by taking action on all those things. There's no conflict with any of that. So for Alan, I think that there was maybe just a little bit of miscommunication as to the, the point of it, because he sort of called in and advocated a, a very stoic lifestyle, thinking that it was different and it, it's really not it, he he was just describing sort of a, um, a a supercharged version of what i was describing and uh and then dan i don't think he necessarily misunderstands stoicism but i just wanted to clarify why i thought one is maybe better for an emergency circumstance like we are in today and then finally i just i just want to wrap up with a little personal note um Things for us are basically going well, but uh, I'm having what I'm describing as emotional nausea, bouts of emotional nausea. So like yesterday, things were going great. I had a to-do list. I was checking them off. I was getting some work done. I was getting some laundry done. I, the dishes were cleaned. And then I got to the end of my to-do list and and it was time to make lunch. And I got this this feeling, this like emotional nausea rolled over me like it felt like a sickness it felt like nausea but emotional 
And I was just drained of energy, had to go sit for a few minutes and kind of like over a little bit of time, it, it got out of my system and I kind of got back to normal. A few hours later though, it came back and it's just like, I'm not sad about anything in particular. I'm just sad. I just have this, uh, this like emotional nausea. I need to vomit up metaphorically and, and get it out of my system somehow. And so, uh, I mean, philosophy aside, what we've been doing, I mean, you, you may have, uh, come across this because it's a bit of a cultural phenomenon. We, we are among the, the throngs of people who uh, have been playing Animal Crossing recently. It's a, so the, it's a game that came out when I, just after I had graduated high school, 2001. I got the first Animal Crossing, played it for, you know, a few months or something, put it away and hadn't played it again for, for almost 20 years. And they, so they just came out with a new one and it's a bit of a cultural phenomenon because people are, uh, it's being described and I agree as kind of a fantastic way to manage coronavirus quarantine because, you know, it's a little, it's a little bit of, it, you know, it's an escape. Uh, it gives you something to focus on besides the news. I mean, there's a whole lot of, of reasons for it. So, so to be honest, that's, that's how we've been spending our downtime. E- even, even when I'm doing my research for the show, I'm often listening to horrifying things via podcast while playing Animal Crossing and building myself, you know, like a botanic garden or something, because that's, that's how, uh, we've been getting through it. Um, so, you know, if, if you're, uh, uh, into that, that, that's how we've been spending our time. And, and, uh, I, I mentioned in the previous episode that I'm actually, we're, we're sort of on vacation this week that this episode was pre-produced. And so we're taking most of this week off. So if, if you're into Animal Crossing and you want to, you know, come visit our island or, or, or vice versa, we'll, we'll probably be up for that. So, uh, get in touch and, and we'll make that happen. And with that, remember that if you want to move toward a more just society, vote with the most vulnerable communities and tell everyone else to do the same. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you as often as we're able during these pandemic times. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.